Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture in order. This is the Academy Archives, and this week we're discussing Academy-nominated film Taxi Driver and Academy Award-winning actress Faye Dunaway. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's our producer, Kayla. Howdy. Hello. Hello. We are here. Yeah. For a new Academy Archives. Woohoo. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about Taxi Driver, of course. Yeah. Illustrious film. Yeah. I'm curious to see what you have to say about it today, because I don't really know anything about Taxi Driver. Yeah. And this was my first time watching it. I knew some stuff about it and of course have heard people talk about it many times yes it's one of those movies that you're not a film bro if you've never seen it so mm. now, well, now I'm you've a film joined bro. the brotherhood <laughs> and you are yes. talking about <laughs> I'm talking about Faye Dunaway who I also didn't really know anything about so I thought that would be interesting I realized I like hadn't really seen any of her movies and she's someone who's going to kind of fade away from our our Oscar discussions, but she's been a part of them like as a major player in the 70s. Yeah. You know, and 60s, too. Yeah, and 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's an enigma to me because she did not really transcend her era. She did not. I mean, she's someone I should say that people have like mixed feelings about. Like she's nobody's favorite and she's also like not a villain. She's kind of just like yeah. a person. So. I don't know. I was just interested in her. Yeah. But before we talk about any of that, we have a Bosley review. All right. Bosley, what's the word? So this Bosley review is about the shaggy dog. Oh, classic, classic. So, of course, this film is a Disney classic from 1959. And Bosley likes this one. Okay. Great. He says A plus to this. All right. Uh, he wishes that sometimes he could transform into a man. Oh, well, that would be very weird. <laughs> but he specifically likes the scene where the shaggy dog is driving. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> so the dog, uh, Shaggy, had to be taught sort of how to drive <laughs> in a way. Uh, they trained him. Uh, by running him around in a wheelbarrow first. Okay. And then put him on like a camera cart. Okay. And wheeled him all around the studio lot. Oh my gosh. So that he could get comfortable like sitting upright. In like a moving thing. In a moving thing. And then they made him like a special seat that would fit in the car. (laughs) And then for like a week, this person, it was their job to just wheel him around periodically. (laughs) the studio lot (laughs) and everyone on the lot just thought it was so fun because then all of a sudden this dog would like come through the different stages and they were trying to like bring him through places with noise and without noise and Uh. from the bright sun into the dark stages and back into the sun and like wow what a weird thing to have to do yeah to make sure that he would be okay driving a car And he did it, and Bosley was so impressed. Wow, that is a fine actor there. He did a lot of uh, a lot of prep for the role. Mm-hmm. Bosley gives it two licks. All right, very good, very good, Bosley. Well, and uh, with that, shall we uh, move into the episode? Uh, you have some info to share with us about the classic film Taxi Driver. I do. 
first, I will start with a recap. Travis Bickle, depressed, down on his luck, and suffering from insomnia after being discharged from the military after service in Vietnam, gets a job as a taxi driver on the night shift. He slips deeper into depression and mania while witnessing the scum of New York City nightlife. He takes Betsy, a campaign manager for presidential nominee Charles Palantine, on a date to a pornographic film, and she is repulsed, refusing to go out with him again. He drops a writer off who wants to murder his wife for having an affair with a black man and comes across Iris, an underage girl being forced to work as a prostitute. All of these instances add to his inner turmoil, and he confides in Wizard, a more senior taxi driver, that he is having violent thoughts of his own. He starts attending Palantine's rallies, trying to decide whether he should take out his rage on him. He starts training physically and purchases several pistols and a knife. One night while in a friend's corner store, he shoots and kills a young man who drew a gun to rob the owner. He goes to another rally, intent on killing Palantine, but is chased off before he can get his pistol out of his jacket. Instead, he goes to the brothel where Iris works to free her of her situation. He kills three men in a rage, including Iris's pimp, Sport, the bouncer, and one of her clients, a mafioso. At the end of the rampage, Travis attempts to kill himself, but he is out of bullets. In the aftermath, Travis is seen as a hero, both for killing the mafia boss and for rescuing Iris, a minor, from the brothel. <laughs> very long recap. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very plot heavy. Yeah. Hmm. Anyways, um, so that's the story of this film. Okay. <laughs> this film had a budget of only $2 million, uh, so pretty low budget for the time. Um, it only grossed $28.6 million. Which I was surprised huh. by. It yeah. was not super popular then. It's way more popular now than it yeah, was when it came out. So this is the first time we're really talking about a Scorsese film. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about him just a little bit. Okay. Uh, just to give some background because we are definitely going to talk about him again. What? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> he has had a picture win Best Picture. All right. Um, he Let's... also wins Best Director later on. All right. Let's talk about Martin. So he grew up in New York City and attended NYU Film School. He made his first feature-length film in 1967, which was called I Call First and was later retitled Who's That Knocking on My Door? Um, and he made this with fellow NYU students Harvey Keitel and Thelma Schoonmaker, mm. two people who then, of course, would work with him for almost every movie of his career. Yeah. Um, Scorsese quickly became friends with the movie brat bunch, which we have been talking about recently. And this is like what these directors are termed, who are directors that grew up watching movies mm -hmm. and then studied filmmaking in some way mm -hmm. because they knew they wanted to make movies themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so these people include uh, Scorsese, of course, Brian De Palma, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Francis Ford Coppola. Mm -hmm. So he started getting connected to them as well as they were all coming up. One of his first big jobs was working as an assistant director on the Oscar-winning documentary Woodstock, which oh, we yeah. have mentioned. Mm -hmm. Thelma Schoonmaker, of course, edited that documentary, which uh, she was nominated mm -hmm. for. He also met John Cassavetes through this film, uh, who became one of his major mentors. Um, and also, he met Roger Corman around this time, who, I don't know, kind of taught him that you could just make what you wanted to make. Mm. And how to make what you want to make 
on a tight budget. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Which is, of course, is very helpful for this film. And also just a good uh, skill to have if you're going to make movies. Yes. Um, so Brian De Palma introduced Scorsese to uh, newcomer Robert De Niro um, early on in both mm. of their careers. And their longtime collaboration began with the film Mean Streets, which was lauded by New Yorker critic Pauline Kael, um, who was one of the main people who helped Scorsese jumpstart his career okay. with her review of Mean Streets. Gotcha. Um, basically, it was a rave review, and she was like, you know, he's going to be one of the next best directors mm. ever. She had the vision. Yes. Meanwhile, around this time, critic-turned-screenwriter Paul Schrader had recently finished writing an original script for a film that he was calling Taxi Driver. He talks about this script and writing the script um, in kind of a bad way. Like, he looks back on it not fondly. Interesting. Um, It was a very dark time of his life when he wrote it. Um, He was living in his car at the time. He said about this time later... Quote, I was very enamored of guns. I was very suicidal. I was drinking heavily. I was obsessed with pornography in the way a lonely person is. And all of those elements are upfront in the script. Wow. That's uh, some weird, brutal honesty. Yeah. Boy, that's tough. Well, and that's like what the, the whole is. story. Yeah. Yeah. So Brian De Palma ended up reading the script and he passed it to the producing team of Julia and Michael Phillips, who had just released their movie, The Sting. Uh Uh-huh. And then he introduced them to his new friend, Martin Scorsese. De Palma also suggested to the three of them that De Niro should play this role, Mm. uh, which at the time seemed written for him. By the time that they were ready to start getting financing for the film, De Niro had won his first Oscar for The Godfather Part Mm Two. The Phillips had won theirs for The Sting. And Scorsese had just directed Ellen Burstyn to her Oscar win. All right. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Um, So now they're very easily able to secure the low-budget funding that they're looking for. Yeah. Which also helps them to keep a big production company out of the mix of this because they want to make the film that they want to make. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert De Niro began preparing for this role by obtaining a taxi driver's license in New York City (laughs) and driving a taxi for nearly a month. He also listened to taped readings of Arthur Bremer's diaries. um, And this guy is one of the inspirations for Schrader's story, too. So he was Bremer, a mentally disturbed man who attempted to assassinate presidential candidate George Wallace at a rally in 1972 which ended up leaving Wallace paralyzed from the waist down. Mm. So this, yeah. of course, is a major plot point in the film. Right. That's a interesting like person in history to find. Yeah. He ended up being uh, arrested, of course, and spent over 30 years in prison sure. for attempted manslaughter. Several actors ended up taking pay cuts from their regular rates to accommodate the low budget of the film. Uh, Robert De Niro and Sybil Shepard both made $35,000 for their roles, Um, which I thought was really interesting that they made the same amount of money for this because she was in like 15 minutes of the film and he was in like 90% of the film. Yeah, interesting. But they were both billed as like the stars of the film. Oh, huh. I I definitely don't think of it as like a two-hander. No, it's, it's not. It's <laughs> just about him, right? I'm, yeah. I'm not crazy. Okay. Yeah. Only $200,000 total of the budget was spent on actors in the film huh. out of $2 million. 
<laughs> Great. <laughs> Definitely a priority. So one of the main controversies of the film, uh, before e- shooting even took place, was the character of Iris, who mm-hmm. is an underage prostitute in the film. So nearly 200 actresses auditioned for the role, including Jennifer Jason Lee and Heather Locklear, which is huh. interesting. They're the right age at the time. Mm-hmm. When they were finally interested in offering the role to Jodie Foster, they had to give her a psychological evaluation uh, with psychologists from UCLA to make sure she would be okay with the trauma associated with the story and the character um, mm-hmm. because she was only 12 years old when she filmed oh, this. Oh, my word. So this was also done in accordance with California Labor Board requirements um, that monitored child welfare on sets. Mm. Um, So they checked her out and felt that she would be mentally stable to play this role. All right. Yeah, that's... Um, She ended up doing so, of course, to great acclaim. uh, Yeah. Getting a Oscar nomination for this at only 12 years old. She later said that she was very uncomfortable working with Scorsese because he didn't know how to relate to children. Ah, sure. Um, Not for any bad reason. Right. But he just, like, didn't know how to talk to kids. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so he couldn't really give her direction. So he had Robert De Niro give her all of her direction. Okay. So he would talk to Robert De Niro about the scenes, and then De Niro would give her the direction. Yeah. She got along really well with him. And they are like were friends throughout the rest of their lives. He ended up doing a lot to help protect her on set too, mm. um, because she was a child and it was such a gruesome movie. Yeah, specifically with the last scene. Yeah, that's like a rampage scene, which she is in and, the whole scene. Yeah, yeah. He ended up sitting with her and going through like all of the technical elements of the scene with her, so that nice. she like knew to focus on that and what she was doing and like all of the how the guns worked and how the blood effects worked and everything and she said like this also like talking through this scene with him not only helped her in the scene but like made her even more interested in movie making too awesome which is really cool did he have kids or something like or was he just like I a think he's person. just a nice person. <laughs> <laughs> that's impressive. Also, that's really remarkable. Like, just like a really cool way to engage a young person and like take care of them. Oh, I love that. Well, and it's so interesting because he is so held up as like a method actor. Sure. But he is so intentional about the craft yeah, of yeah. acting and filmmaking and like He's from the actor studio and he's very, very <laughs> serious about it, but not in a way that's unhealthy. Yeah, that's awesome. In a way that's very realistic and also a way that like can dissociate reality from the like movie making stuff, mm-hmm. which I think is great to instill that in children too, who are going to be in movies. Yeah. That's cool. Well, and it's especially interesting because this role is held up as like, inspiration for all the other like white man rage roles throughout the rest of time yeah and i don't know he did not approach it that way yeah he approached it as an actor who Mm -hmm. was playing a role Mm -hmm. and future actors who are playing roles like this feel like they they're given a license to act out or like they use it whether intentionally or not to like get some anger out or like right to like have a free pass to behave poorly on set or to other people under the guise of 
method acting or getting in character or whatever mm-hmm. whatever stupid reason yeah the mpaa was very oh worried about this film <laughs> they did not really approve the script or do any of that ahead of time because it was they knew there was going to be trouble with it once mm-hmm. it was made anyways <laughs> so they kind of just let it happen yeah they of course wanted to give the film an x rating especially because of the last scene i mean it's very violent um, is it because of the violence or because of like the presence of a minor in the violence? Uh, it's because of the violence okay. itself. It's extremely violent. It's very, very bloody. I mean, it's so far beyond any other Thing we've film seen. that we've talked about. Yeah. Besides maybe Bonnie and Clyde, mm. which just has a very different tone. Yeah. Also, the seriousness of this film throughout the whole film mixed with like the ending yeah. definitely is what caused that. Yeah. <laughs> So to get around this, which is really interesting, um, they didn't re-edit the film at all. Mm -hmm. Scorsese had the colors of the scene desaturated so that the blood wasn't very bright red. Um, And that's all it took for them to be like, yeah, okay, that's an R rating now. Are you serious? That's so weird. Yeah. And I don't really know why that satisfied them. Like, because it doesn't change the scene at all. I mean, it does... They have said now that like the original print with the saturated color is has been lost. So like oh. we don't really know what it looked like yeah. originally. So I don't know if it was just like it just so bright red and like dark blood color that it was more disturbing yeah. somehow. I mean it's a very disturbing scene and there's tons of blood and you can see it all, <laughs> but I don't know. Scorsese ended up liking the colors anyways more. So he was like, oh, this was good that I like. Huh. Like it it's is a like a, an interesting stylistic choice now. Okay, great. <laughs> so there's that. One other person who is very, very important to the making of this film is Bernard Herrmann. This is his last film as a composer. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, he's done several other amazing films. We talked about him most when uh, we talked about Psycho. Uh, yeah. He finished this film only days before he passed away. Wow. And so the film was dedicated in his honor at the beginning of the film. It says, you know, mm-hmm. dedicated to Bernard Herrmann. And Scorsese, when he started thinking about this film and read the script, he was like, he has to do this film. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was great and a big deal that he got to do it. That's nice. his last film. Um, the last thing that I just want to talk about is like, the themes in this it's very i mean it's like the whole white man rage type film it feels very outdated now ah it's totally and it's strange that they're still trying to make movies that are like akin to this yeah i hadn't seen this before i watched joker with joaquin phoenix oh sure and that film of course got compared to this film quite a bit Mm -hmm. because it's essentially the same exact film Oh, Um, which kind of made me dislike Joker more than I did even like I didn't love it to begin with. (laughs) But to me, it feels very unoriginal now watching this film. Yeah. Um, I don't know, especially because it's like we all have seen this story so many times. It's like, oh, yeah, that's why I don't watch these movies because I'm like, there's nothing I'm going to gain from this. And also, I mean, the people that are experiencing the violence are often people like me. Yeah. Well, and they, it's set up as such a, a like, oh, the, it's very gray. He, is <laughs> yeah, he like a good person ambiguous. or bad? Yeah. He has bad intentions, but he did a good thing. So he can be 
called a hero now. And boring, boring. I don't care. I don't know. It's just very uninteresting. Yeah. And I feel like a way more interesting version of this story is like Midnight Cowboy. Uh, where like that movie could turn into this movie uh-huh. if they if both of those characters gave into like their feeling angry are, yeah. rather than like keeping trying to make their situation better. <laughs> They're just both so optimistic. <laughs> I know. Well, and like essentially at the start of the film, they're the same as he is at the start mm. of this film, where yeah. like he's just down on his luck. He doesn't know what to do. Yeah. He, yeah, doesn't know where to turn. He needs yeah. a lot of help. He has nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. And then on top of that, uh, it <laughs> inspired other people to do bad things. Oh, gosh. Of um, course it did. Ugh. Mostly uh, it inspired John Hinckley Jr.'s attempt to kill Ronald Reagan in 1981. <laughs> of course, everybody knows this story. He became very obsessed with this film. He watched it over and over and over. He became obsessed with Jodie Foster's character in the film. Terrible. Um, and because of that, decided that he should attempt to kill somebody like this character did. That person was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> he did shoot Ronald Reagan and like <sighs> had sent letters to Jodie Foster saying that it was because of her in this film that he was like trying to protect her or something and thought that Ronald Reagan was out to get her somehow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Um, yeah, he ended up being found not guilty by reason of insanity. Yeah, clearly. He obviously, I don't know, had some some troubles. Yeah. Scorsese, when he heard about this, like, actually almost thought about quitting filmmaking because he Mm. felt like I really horrible. Yeah. I always wonder how filmmakers or even like actors feel about things when like people do terrible things deranged things on their own because mm-hmm. of the art they've consumed that those people have made it's yeah. like how do you respond to that as a person a person who like has feelings and empathy because you're in filmmaking right well and it comes at an interesting time because during this time when scorsese is making this film he is like starting his cocaine addiction Mm. Um, which almost kills him in the next like couple years of his life. Mm-hmm. And then by the time the attempted murder on Ronald Reagan happens, he is sober. Interesting. And so he has a lot more clarity on life and mm-hmm. whatever. And so... It causes him to yeah. question everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. But I'll talk more about that part of Scorsese's life uh, in a few episodes. <laughs> When we get to his uh, next collaboration with Robert De Niro. Hmm. I don't know. And it makes sense now watching this film why it didn't win any Academy Awards. Mm. The the Academy was just like not into this. Yeah. Like the themes. They were yeah. not into the violence. Yeah. It was like pushing the envelope a little too hard. Mm-hmm. I think everybody thought that it was good filmmaking. Yeah. But didn't feel that they could reward Sure. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Which, I mean, even Scorsese was not nominated, even. Right. And Paul Schrader was not nominated for the script. Yeah. Yeah. So, all in all, it ended up being nominated only for Best Picture, Best Actor for Robert De Niro, Best Supporting Actress for Jodie Foster, and Best Original Score, which was a posthumous nomination for Bernard Herrmann. Mm -hmm. 
it ended up doing really well in foreign markets. Interesting. Um, which makes which, sense yeah, because there's a lot more acceptance of there's violence. a lot more violence in foreign films at yeah. this time. It ended up winning the Palme d'Or at mm-hmm. Cannes. Mm-hmm. It won Best Foreign Film at the Blue Ribbon Awards in Japan. And Scorsese and Jodie Foster won several awards at mm-hmm. all of those festivals mm-hmm. elsewhere as well. It's an interesting film. Yeah. I feel like it is worth watching because it's like the original of this type of film. Sure. Yeah. Well, and I doubt it was meant to inspire the genre of films that followed it. Like, I feel like it was meant to be a standalone film. It's meant to be an artistic expression of loneliness and rage Mm -hmm. and disappointment and those things. Well, and it's hard because I feel like a lot of these people probably had felt these feelings. Oh, yeah. And they wanted to take out their rage. I mean, yeah, Scorsese was getting hooked on cocaine at the time. So, like, I'm sure it resonated a lot with him. Mm -hmm. And... In some senses, that's good, Mm -hmm. but not when you take it too far. Right. And I mean, there's been a million think pieces and studies done on this like very specific topic of these types of art pieces, whether it's movies or whatever, that feature a fragile white man who is lonely or broken and wants to be a hero and uses violence and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a sad thing, but it's a thing that I think rings true for a lot of people. And Mm -hmm. it's hard because like... Some versions of that are probably good and helpful. And like, in a way, it is kind of a relief to get your anger out through watching a movie. I feel that way sometimes. I watch Mad Max when I'm like, uh, Fury Road, of course, when I'm like needing to like get my aggression out because it like, it just like fuels me. It's Mm -hmm. so good to let go of that. And and I totally understand that sentiment. But uh, obviously the problem is when it's against people. Well, and it's hard too (laughs) when it's meant to look very appealing. Gray, and and is he really a hero? And like, (laughs) he does something really wrong, right? For the wrong reasons, (laughs) but then is considered a hero because it looks right from the outside. I don't know. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's tricky. Yeah, do something good instead, and like help a child through a tough situation like being on set and right helping her cope with the world (laughs) and like being uh showing her real humanity yeah boy that i think that's what gets me it's like why would i watch a movie like that when there could be that version of it instead yeah you know it's like uh jimmy stewart giving chocolates to that one actress (laughs) yeah why can't you just be kind (laughs) on the set of you can't take it with you those are the kind of men we need to uplift. Those are the role models. Well, that's all I have to share about this film. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for watching that and getting through that, I guess. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an important part of uh, film history. It is. And a very important part of Robert De Niro's career and mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese's. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's an interesting talking point about the Academy Awards and I think we're uh, we've talked about the different like eras of the films we've been watching and we're definitely in that era still where things are like pushing the envelope in a way that I don't think people know how to respond to and don't know what's worth awarding or not awarding and like it we're seeing some weird films that are getting awards that haven't stood the test of time and then films that are getting skipped over entirely that are still popular today. Mm-hmm. So Well, know. and interestingly, like 
this film, we actually know it would do really well today because Joker was made and was nominated <laughs> for so many things and Joaquin Phoenix won. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. you know. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. Anyways, why don't we jump into the world of Faye Dunaway? <laughs> yeah, it's not that much more optimistic, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> So today I'm talking about actress Faye Dunaway. Um, obviously, her most popular films are Bonnie and Clyde, Chinatown, both of which we've talked about on here. And then the film we're talking about this week, sort of, Network. Um, all three of those films have been included in the American Film Institute's Best 100 American Films Ever Made. They're Academy Award darlings. Hmm. They've uh, stood the test of time in terms of critical response. But she also has a very limited career outside of them. Um, yeah. She has some cult classics. She is very much an icon of the era. And one of the things I think that kind of interested me in her is that she represents this like the face of new Hollywood, but she is still a very classic starlet in a lot of ways. Mm. Like the way that the old stars were, which is like very private, doesn't do a lot of public interviews, you know, doesn't have a lot of like gossip columns about her, that kind of thing. She has this like air of like artistry about her, but she's still very glamorous. So anyways, that's Mm. kind of what I'm talking about. Also, she has a very uh, large reputation for the way that she is. So, Of course, it's also very interesting to me because she has worked with a lot of the greatest directors of all time. She's worked with Ilya Kazan, Otto Preminger, Sidney Lumet, uh, Arthur Penn, Roman Polanski, Sidney Pollack. I mean, she's in films that have not made their careers, but it's just crazy that they've worked together. Oh, I liked this quote about her and I just wanted to share it. It was from an article I read on Movie Line just about her career. Um, and I thought I just described her very well. Um, quote, though fiercely modern, an ideal female analog for screen machos like Steve McQueen and the young Jack Nicholson, she also radiated the stuff vintage movie stars are made of. So that I felt like was a good descriptor of, of hmm. her style. Well, and she is sort of an anomaly, I feel, because... It's interesting that you're comparing her to sort of the older starlets of old Hollywood because she feels that way in her look. Like Uh her face is very angular compared to the face of the younger actresses of the 70s. -hmm. It's trending toward more rounder faced. like Softer features. Yeah. Yeah. And she is in those kinds of movies Mm -hmm. where she's like a more hardened... Yeah. Well, and I'll talk about that a little bit because it's literally one of the things that people struggled with the most in casting her Uh, was her face. Yeah. Um, Because, you know, directors would become enamored with her and be desperate to have her in their movies and casting would be like, she does not look like your average Texas girl. Right. Like she looks like a star. (laughs) Yeah. So how can we get her to play this like sweetheart, you know, that kind (laughs) of thing. So I'll talk about that a little bit too. Um, The other thing I wanted to just talk about before we get into it too much is her personality (laughs) because she's often considered very cold or hard to work with. Um, And this is mostly due to her clash with Roman Polanski on Chinatown, which is kind of an Mm -hmm. infamous incident. Yeah. Um, I want to address that as being allowed to be both and um, because I think that there's a lot of, oh, women are difficult, uh, women who assert themselves or whatever. And uh, also she got... Like, she's a perfectionist. She's probably mm-hmm. a difficult actress to work with in that way. But also, like, people were difficult to her. So, I don't mm-hmm. know. I feel like there's a little bit of both. 
Also, Samantha people Dur- are not allowed to get along. Like, that's uh, totally. okay. Totally. <laughs> well, and, like, director she worked with, like, Ilya Kazan, absolutely loved her. Uh, he said, quote, she's a supremely endowed, hungry, curious, bright young talent. She's a brilliant actress and a shy, highly strung woman. She's intelligent and strong-willed. And also, Sydney Lumet talked about her saying, quote, the artist is rarely, if ever, satisfied. The artist is frequently grateful and intermittently amazed, but he or she is never satisfied. That Faye is unlikely to be satisfied with her efforts or those with whom she works is not a caprice. It is the willful misbehavior of a spoiled actress. This is how artists operate. Mm. Which I feel like is a pretty accurate summation of what it is to work with, you know, a highly strung actress. So... Um, I also thought this was so funny. You know, I got to throw my girl Betty Davis in here uh-huh. into the conversation. She does not like Faye Dunaway. She described her oh. as the worst person she's ever worked with. Oh, my gosh. Called her totally impossible in an interview, uncooperative, very unprofessional. That's funny. And this is what Faye Dunaway had to say in response to this in her autobiography. She said, quote, watching her. All I could think of was that she seemed like someone caught in a death row, a final scream against a fate over which no one has control. I was just the target of her blind rage at the one sin Hollywood never forgives in its leading ladies, growing old. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because I also thought this is a very interesting perspective. You know, she's of the generation of actresses that are watching the first generation get old and get discarded. Mm-hmm. Um, and people like Betty Davis are angry and mm-hmm. rightfully so. And we've talked about that experience and how hard it is for w- the women of Hollywood to navigate those things in past episodes about actresses I've had. So mm-hmm. so anyways, just to start at the beginning, she was born on January 14th, 1941 in Bascom, Florida. Um, she was always very artistic. She studied ballet and tap. She went to high school in Tallahassee. Um, she studied at Florida State University and the University of Florida, but then later ended up graduating from Boston University with a degree in theater. Mm. So she is a trained girly. Um, The summer before her senior year of college, she was in the summer stock company at Harvard's Loeb Drama Center. So, you know, good for her. And uh, following all of this in 1962, at the age of 21, she took acting classes at the American National Theater and Academy, where she was spotted by Lloyd Richards um, while she was doing a production of The Crucible and then was recommended to Elia Kazan. Because he was in search of young talent for something he was doing at the Lincoln Center Repertory Company. Hmm. Um, so shortly after she graduated from Boston University, she appeared on Broadway as a replacement in A Man for All Seasons. Oh, my. Yeah. So she kind of just jumped straight into a career, which is a, I think this is like a cool era for actors because mm-hmm. it's the start of this like traditional path of Mm -hmm. you are a child you do you live your life but you love drama and then you go and you study it at college and then you go from college to broadway (laughs) ah the dream Uh, yes that classic path (laughs) yeah exactly no like doing the labs and the summer stock and all that kind of stuff i just love that after a man for all seasons she appeared in arthur miller's after the fall and then she was in hogan's goat Uh, which is by Harvard professor William Alfred, who ended up becoming her mentor. Hmm. Um, Her first film was the film The Happening, which ultimately people could take it or leave it. No one really cared. Hmm. And no one really said anything about her performance. And it was kind of just like, fine, that was okay, whatever. Mm -hmm. But that same year, she had a supporting role in Otto Preminger's drama, Hurry Sundown, which she was opposite of Michael Caine and Jane Fonda in, Mm. uh, which is kind of where she had her first like breakout. 
Sadly, she and Otto Preminger clashed a lot. Um, He just thought she knew nothing about acting. He didn't like her style. He thought she was novice. And he didn't want to teach her, basically. Sure. Uh, Which is is fair. (laughs) You know, she had signed a six-picture deal with Preminger at this point. Oh, no. Yeah. So she decided to... So she decided during the filming of this film to get the contract back. Yeah. Um, she said about it, quote, as much as it cost me to get out of the deal with Otto, if I'd had to do those movies with him, then I wouldn't have done Bonnie and Clyde or the Thomas Crown Affair or any of the movies I was suddenly in a position to choose to do. Beyond the movies I might have missed, it would have been a kind of Chinese water torture to have been stuck in five more terrible movies. It's impossible to assess the damage that that might have done to me early on in my career. Hmm. Which I think is lucky for her because she is right about those things. Like, it may have been great, it may not have been, but she got to do movies that she felt more inclined towards and didn't have to work with someone she didn't get along with. Hmm. Um, the film did not do well in the box office, but she did get a Golden Globe Award nomination out of it for New Star of the Year and started to become popular in the public eye. During this time, she had wanted to meet director Arthur Penn when he directed the film The Chase. But at that point in time, casting just didn't think she looked right. Um, And this is kind of what I was talking about earlier, where her face is very distinct. She's a very beautiful, glamorous, structured face. And uh, she just doesn't look like your average girl. And Mm -hmm. so they just didn't think she was right. But when Penn saw her scenes from The Happening before its release, um, he decided to let her read for the role of bank robber Bonnie Parker for his upcoming film, Bonnie and Clyde. Mm Mm-hmm. He just loved her. He thought she was incredible. She was exactly what he wanted, but everybody else was not on board. Warren Beatty was very nervous about it. Um, He didn't think that she could pull off the look. Um, Casting didn't agree either. However, they changed their minds after they saw some photos of her taken by photographer Curtis Hansen on the beach. And Warren Beatty said about it, quote, she could hit the ball across the net and she had an intelligence and a strength that made her both powerful and romantic. And this is what kind of persuaded everybody that she could be this like bomb, not bombshell, but like romantic, dominant kind of woman. Yeah. Well, and she's perfect for that role. And we talk about this in that episode. Yeah. But like they skew their relationship because of like potential sexuality things with. Uh, Clyde's character mm-hmm. and you know he is very non-dominant yeah like in relationship as opposed to like being a killer mm-hmm. otherwise yeah so it's just like it's so interesting to hear it from this side mm-hmm. of her career because like I don't know she's perfect for that role well and you think of her in that role and you think of that role as her right and she would say the same thing she feels very kindred and like one in the same with the role of Bonnie like it was made for her like she was made for it that kind of a thing and I mean in a way she kind of defined this new kind of woman too yeah right which I think is very very cool and she felt very personally uh like akin to that Mm -hmm. so that's I think it's a neat way to like establish yourself in the uh culture well and it's a very like 70s stereotype for a female character Mm -hmm. it's just interesting that she was not like she didn't play more of those yeah yeah sure and i mean she kind of did they just kind of didn't take off the same way right like this is obviously the like standout in her career of this type of character 
Um, when she got the role, she immediately began starving herself for the Depression era look, which only made her look more severe, mm. uh, which I just thought was worth mentioning because one thing about her is that she's very obsessed with her work. She is mm. like a trained actor. She cares about the process, but also she's a dangerous actor in this way. And I mean, this is something we haven't talked about a ton yet because it hasn't really been a requirement. Studios have been very in charge of actors up to this point, but we're starting to get to a place where actors are going to start making decisions about their looks and their bodies that I personally really disagree with, which Mm -hmm. is fluctuating weight, changing their appearance to fit roles rather than allowing the roles to fit them, that kind of thing, um, which is very difficult and causes a lot of uh, culture issues too. Yeah. Another thing that Robert De Niro did for Taxi Driver. Yeah. Gross. hate that. Uh, Yeah. And I have nothing positive to say about that. I feel, I, I understand the depression era time period so i do understand the sentiment behind it i just don't think it's wise or healthy Mm -hmm. obviously we've talked about bonnie and clyde the culture shift it caused um (laughs) the change in the academy i mean it got our man bosley off of uh you know (laughs) being the go-to reviewer of course roger ebert gave the film a rave review um he loved faye dunaway in it etc etc it was nominated for 10 academy awards including best picture she received her first nomination for best actress um And, of course, this film made her one of the most bankable actresses in Hollywood, Mm. which is kind of crazy. What a, like, quick jump she had. Um, But it really made her stand out. She said about it, quote, It put me firmly in the ranks of actresses that would do work that was art. There are those who elevate the craft of acting to the art of acting, and now I would be among them. I was the golden girl at that time. One of those women who was going to be nominated year after year for an Oscar and would win at least one. The movie established the quality of my work. Bonnie and Clyde would also turn me into a star. Hmm. Which, again, doesn't she just sound like an old star? Like, it's very classic Hollywood style to me. Like, I feel like a lot of the actresses in this, like, 60s, 70s don't talk like this. They, They talk about, like desire and wanting to like you know do these things but she's more like no i i'm gonna like get to the next level um i don't Mm -hmm. know it's just very interesting it's interesting too because she also sounds like some people today totally Mm -hmm. yeah like that's a very modern sentiment as well Mm -hmm. yeah yeah just interesting what goes around comes around Uh, yeah cycles (laughs) i also just wanted to include this quote she said about the character of bonnie because it's a very important part of her life she said quote that movie touched the core of my being never have i felt so close to a character as i felt to bonnie she was a yearning edgy ambitious southern girl who wanted to get out of wherever she was i knew everything about wanting to get out and the getting out doesn't come easy. But with Bonnie, there was a real tragic irony. She got out only to see that she was heading nowhere and that the end was death. Hmm. So moving on, she did get to like choose her career now. And so the next film she did was The Thomas Crown Affair, which was another hit for her, which was great. And once again, the same thing happened uh, that happened in Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, director Norman Jewison saw her early release scenes from Bonnie and Clyde. He immediately wanted her for his film, but again, he had to convince everybody else that she could do it. Because, um, and it's the same thing again, casting says her looks, her demeanor, they caused them to question whether she could play a character that required sensuality, elegance, and wasn't as severe. So, mm-hmm. uh, again, same thing happens, but uh, they put her in the role. The film is a great success. Um, and right after this, because she knows now that she can kind of do whatever she wants, she decides to jump into France's new wave directors. So she begins to film for 
the film A Place for Lovers, which is Vittorio De Sica's romantic drama. Um, and this is off in Italy. And this is kind of what she thinks the next career step is for her is like she sees the French new wave happening. She wants to be a part of it. Obviously, it appeals to her like highbrow artistic side. Mm -hmm. And so that's the direction she decides to go. Sadly, the movie was a big artistic disappointment for her. She Mm. just was not satisfied with the end product and it was a box office failure. So that kind of didn't work out. And one of the main regrets that she has in her life (laughs) is that against her better judgment, she had an affair with married co-star Marcello Mastriani who is in the film with her. He's a married man with a family and she just falls head over heels in love with him, Hmm. sacrifices a lot of things because of him. So I'll talk about him in a little bit, but yeah, kind of a a low point for her personally. Um, The next thing that happens is in 1969, she appears in The Arrangement, which is directed by Elie Kazan, um, based on the novel opposite Kirk Douglas. Again, the film does really bad at the box office, and it receives almost all negative reviews, with the exception of for Faye Dunaway. Hmm. Um, it's interesting that like she was able to kind of come through unscathed from this one. Um, <laughs> I like this quote from Vincent Camby of the New York Times. He said that she was, quote, looking so cool and elegant that the sight of her almost pinches the optic nerves. Oh, my. And I think it's around this time that she also begins to rely a lot on her looks, um, which, you know, is a hard thing for a woman in the public eye. Um, And as I said before, she really does not talk a lot about her life. She doesn't do a lot of public interviews. She doesn't do a lot of like just like giving people information about her thoughts and feelings. Most of the things that I've learned about her literally just come from her autobiography. Hmm. Um, She talks very candidly about herself and her feelings in that. But outside of that, it's very hard to find you know, things that are not written about her, but rather are coming from her. Mm -hmm. So during this time, despite protests from her agent, um, she turned down a lot of high profile projects in order to spend time with a Marcello Mastriani. She really wanted to marry him. She wanted to run away with him. She wanted to have children with him. Uh, And he didn't want to leave his wife and kids for her. He, of course, says that this is like the greatest regret of his life, that he didn't run away with her, blah, blah, blah. But like, just ridiculous. Obviously, it was just a mess. She said about this quote, there are days when I look back on those years with Marcello and have moments of real regret. There's that one piece of me that thinks that had we married, we might be married still. It was one of our fantasies that we would grow old together. He thought we would be like Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, a love secret kept secret for a lifetime, private and only belonging to the two of us. Of course, that's gross and not the way that life works. And obviously, it's a fantasy. And that's an illicit affair, you know? Mm-hmm. They just break your heart over and over. And sadly, during this time, almost all of her films were commercial or artistic failures, some of them being The Extraordinary Seaman, Little Big Man, Puzzle of a Downfall Child, which did actually have a resurgence more recently. It was uh, screened later on at Sundance like mm. as a like look back on her career film and has since gained popularity again. Mm. But during the time, it just like didn't work for her. So during this time, she ended up having some domestic issues, obviously, with her relationship. Yeah. So she took some time away from working. She was unhappy with her career, unhappy with her personal life. So she took some months off of work. Um, She returned back in 1971 for the film Doc, free from all of the baggage. 
and it kind of revitalized her. The film like was fine. It wasn't great or bad or anything like that, but it just reminded her how much she missed working and how that's where she felt alive and, and mm. that's where she thrived. So she decided that she would get back into it. So she decided to try and work with another French New Wave director, Jean-Luc Godard, on The Deadly Trap. Um, she also worked on a TV film, The Woman I Love, and another film called Oklahoma Crude. And she was just trying. She was like throwing stuff against the wall, trying to see what stuck. Yeah. Um, Roger Ebert accused her during this time of being rather absent-minded during her career, which, you know, eh, is kind of true. Mm. Um, she felt confused, so she decided to return to her home on the stage. Oh. Uh, she did Harold Pinter's Old Times in 1972. Oh. And this is what she said about it, which I thought was great. Um, old times affected me in a lot of very complex ways. The play itself reminded me during a difficult point in my life that there had been a million facets to life. There is never just one answer. Professionally, if I hadn't taken that step to go back to the stage in a serious way, I think I might have suffered for it. Hmm. Um, the following year, she played Blanche Dubois in a Los Angeles stage adaption of Tennessee Williams, A Streetcar Named Desired. And it was a massive success for her. Tennessee Williams himself praised her performance. Oh. He said that he thought she was brave and adorable and reminded him of a precocious child and that her performance ranked with the very best, which she took as the highest praise she mm -hmm. could ever receive, which I feel like it kind of is. Um, and it kind of like gave her the jump start that she needed to get back into things, which led to her next film, which was finally a success again. She did The Three Musketeers, which ended oh. up being split into The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers. And people really liked the comedy action style of the film. Mm -hmm. And it kind of made people look at her in a different light because she'd never done something like that. Interesting. And so like middle America was like, oh, yeah, that's Faye Dunaway. We like her. And mm. it kind of like gave her the little boost that she she needed to have a career resurgence which brought on Chinatown, uh -huh. which we've talked about, so I don't really need to go into it too much. Yeah. Obviously, it was a great success for her. She got along great with Jack Nicholson. She mm -hmm. calls him a soulmate. Um, she clashed terribly with uh, Roman Polanski. Mm -hmm. um, you know, of course, there's like the... The classic uh, confrontation that's very notorious where he pulled one of her hairs out of her head because he said it was catching the light, which caused her to lose her mind and, you know, storm off the set because of that, which honestly would drive me crazy, too. So, mm -hmm. you know, both. Both and. Um, in the end, both of them have talked pleasantly about this time, like in retrospect and like have mm -hmm. more respect for each other. Obviously, we have our own feelings about Roman Polanski outside of all of this, but they both were kind of like, he was a good director. I was high strung, blah, blah, blah. So sure. whatever. And he was also like, she's a good actress. I whatever. Of course, it was a very well-received movie. We talked about its Academy Award nominations. Um, mm -hmm. She got another acting nomination out of it. Um, and she really likes it. <laughs> she yeah. says it's like probably her best film out of her entire collection. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. Which is good. She also really loved the role. Like yeah. she just really it's a connected really, with really it. Good role for her. She talks about how alongside Bonnie, um, it's another one of her favorites. Um, so yeah. Mm. Right after this, she did the film After the Fall, which again was mm. another role that she just loved. It felt like something that really connected with her. So that's the reason I I mention it um, because it just like is another character that she felt very kindred to. Mm. And right after this, she does The Towering Inferno, which becomes the highest grossing oh. film in 1974. And it just cements her as the top 
actress in Hollywood. She is now making big bucks. She's very popular. She's the face of actors in the se- actresses, I should say, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, she's finally getting both the critical and commercial success that she's been craving. Um, she does Sidney Pollock's political thriller, Three Days at the Condor, which again gives her great success. People love it. But she also starts to like teeter totter a little bit. She took a year long break. She turned down Hitchcock's last film, The Family Plot, which she mm. really regrets. She wished she is she wished she had done that. And then back in 1976, she decided to get into it again when she was given the script for the film Network. She loved the script and she said it was, quote, the only film I ever did that you didn't touch the script because it was almost as if it were written in verse. She just felt very connected to it. Um, She also believed that her role in it was just a really important role. So she was very proud of that. And she really liked that director, Sidney Lumet, warned her before filming began that she would not be allowed to sneak in any weeping or softness and that it would remain on the cutting room floor if she did. So she felt very like challenged by this. It felt like a good undertaking for her. Yeah. And of course it was very successful in that regard. Uh, Won many Oscars uh, for acting. Uh, She got her win finally, as she predicted in her early career that she was going to be an actress that was nominated and then finally wins one. That's the expectation. And she accomplished it. Yeah. Uh, And the same year, I just feel like I should mention this is the year she does The Disappearance of Amy, co-starring with Betty Davis. So that's Ah, when they meet. Yes. Um, Following, of course, I only want to get to one more movie to talk about today, but between that and the movie I want to talk about, she does a string of just kind of moderate movies that have mixed reviews. The Eyes of Laura Mars, The Champ, The First Deadly Sin. She does the miniseries based on a Vita called First Lady of Argentina. Mm-hmm. Basically, in her career, she tries a lot of stuff. She does everything. She does yeah. TV. She does movies, blah, blah, blah. Um, in 1981, she played Joan Crawford in the biopic Mommy oh, Dearest, interesting. which is now known as a, a cult classic. Hmm. Um, and it kind of really changed people's perspective on her, especially from like a modern context. Um, So the movie was based on Crawford's daughter, Christina's controversial memoirs. Mm -hmm. To me, this is like the blonde of the 70s, Um, except it was actually someone's memoirs. And so in her book, uh, she portrays Joan Crawford as an abusive, adoptive mother. Right. But the filmmakers kind of wanted it to be more of like a holistic look at Joan Crawford. So like taking some of those things and like, throwing them onto the woman people knew. So mm. like kind of trying to find a middle ground, at least that's also what Faye Dunaway believed was happening and what she was doing too. So she was absolutely obsessed with this role. She wanted to portray her in all of her facets. She wanted to illuminate who she was to allow her to be both angry and soft and all those things. She was watching all of her movies. She reached out to anyone who knew Joan Crawford. She interviewed George Cukor, like anyone who may have known or worked with her. She tried to like connect with and she started to go a little crazy. Uh Uh-oh. She became Joan Crawford. In a way, she kind of did. She said about it, quote, if your mind is on a woman who is dead and you're trying to find out who she was and do right by her, you do feel a presence. I felt it at home at night sometimes. It wasn't pleasant. I felt Joan was not at rest. Oh, no. Which, I mean, is uh, a little scary. Uh Uh-huh. You know? And I think that's why people are just so, like, enamored with this movie in a weird way. Mm. Um, When she walked on set for the first time, everyone was just shocked. It was like Joan Crawford was in the room. She looked exactly like her. She acted just like her. And there were people working on this movie who had known Joan Crawford or had worked with her in real life. Mm -hmm. And they were just, like, flabbergasted by the resemblance. Hmm. 
Uh, the film was controversial. <laughs> there was commercial success for the film, but the critics had very mixed reviews. A lot of people just didn't like the the movie itself. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought she was doing an impersonation rather than like mm. really playing the woman, which I feel like is the struggle of biopics. Yeah, I mean, in general, it's really hard to just be a person who's already lived. Mm-hmm. Um, eh, people found it disturbing. Or, like, other people thought it was more self-aware than the memoirs were. Uh, you know, everybody had a different opinion about it. And she honestly had some regrets after the film. She kind of feels like she did Joan a little dirty. She mm. she talks a lot about how she had really good intentions at the time and thought she was doing something to, like, give you a window into her life and all these things. And she now kind of feels like it was exploitive that she just, you know painted someone who was already having a hard time in Hollywood worse than she probably needed. So Yeah, right. You know. And unfortunately, uh it did kind of hurt her career too. Um she blames this film for being a big stopper in her career. And she also kind of became scared that people thought she was like Joan Crawford. Um because Joan Crawford did have some aggressive tendencies and like was notoriously a little difficult to work with despite being glamorous and being fully realized woman you know so I think that there was a little bit of uh, difficulty with that Uh, unfortunately this kind of led to a weird tailspin in her career she did a bunch of tv stuff she did some miniseries she did some films she you know didn't really find anything that super hit and started to feel like she was just disappearing she married a photographer Terry O'Neill who took uh, a very famous photo of her called the morning after of her with her Oscar after the morning Mm. of the ceremonies which is like a very classic photo she ended up marrying him and moving to England with him for a while trying to do British television and just like felt like she was losing herself couldn't do it and um, when they divorced in 1987 she moved back to the U.S. to do more like indie films she felt like that was the way to go. So mm-hmm. she does Barfly, uh, based on the book by Charles Bukowski, which revitalized her, sent her back to what she wanted to do, remembered her passion. Unfortunately, now, well, un- however you want to look at it, she had a child. So she felt more responsible to work. Mm. She felt like she couldn't pick and choose everything, but she did need to like be more intentional about the things she was doing. So in 1990, she does a, an adaption of Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale, which like didn't do super well in the box office, but did do well for her. It kind of like gave people back like, oh, yeah, she's like a good actress, whatever. And then the last thing I wanted to kind of mention <laughs> is something I found very fun. So in 1994, CBS was building a sitcom around her mm. in which she was going to play a female sleuth. Um, She really didn't like the direction. She couldn't figure out why she didn't like it. She wanted the show to be more Columbo than Murder, she wrote, which Mm. was leaning towards that. And she just didn't like the style. She wanted to be like like the men detectives. Mm -hmm. So she personally reached out to Peter Falk for advice. And they had a meeting. They talked shop. And while they were just talking about this stuff, he brought up an episode that he personally had written for Columbo. Uh, in which Columbo is faced with a female, like a seductive woman who ends up playing cat and mouse with him and is like his nemesis, like his equal, that kind of thing. But they never made it because they could never find a woman to play the role that he felt like was his equal. But then in this meeting that they were having together talking about all this stuff, he's like, what if you do it? And she's like, I could just do that instead. So she very excitedly accepted it and they began work immediately on turning it into a TV movie for Columbo. So they did a TV movie called It's All in the Game. It was a massive success and a little bit of a revitalizer for her. She won her Emmy for it. And she just finally felt like she was at home. It was exactly what she wanted to do. Hmm. 
Um, anyways, she's had a career. She's still alive. Yeah. I mean, she's still working. She's uh, become a little more notorious as she's aged for being difficult, um, you know, which happens. Uh, and it's hard to know whether that's true or whether that's just her being an old lady, which is allowed. <laughs> but also there's been some comments about she was supposed to play Catherine Hepburn in a play that was going to Broadway. And she was released from it before it opened because of remarks, which I couldn't find what the lawsuit was actually about. She ended up suing all this stuff. But most likely she said something either homophobic or transphobic or something like that, hmm. um, which caused her to be released from the show. And like they ended on bad terms. Term. So there's that. Um, the last thing I should also just uh, have to throw in there is that uh, obviously at the 89th Academy Awards, they mm-hmm. were celebrating uh, the 50th anniversary of Bonnie and Clyde. And so she got to uh, announce the Best Picture winner. And, uh, you know, we'll get to this eventually. They were given the wrong envelope or something happened. And she incorrectly announced La La Land as Best Picture mm-hmm. when in fact it was Moonlight. And obviously... That is a very uh, one of the biggest gaps of them yeah, all. Yeah, very charged Oscar history moment, which unfortunately she was at the center of. So, gotta say that while we're on our Oscars podcast. Mm-hmm. But that's what I have to share today about her career and her life. Obviously, she's just done a billion movies and TV shows and plays, and mm-hmm. you know what? Good on her. <laughs> I, I she's an interesting person to me. I I um. I'm always interested in women that are painted in a negative light by Hollywood Mm. where there's not a lot of reason for it other than she's difficult. She's hard to work with. She's needy. She's a tyrant. She's whatever, because I just tend to not believe that. Mm. And I'm sure some of it's true. And I, I'm sure she's an asshole at times and like, but everybody's given the right to do that. I wish that people were kind and were easy to work with, but sometimes it's just hard to be that way. So I guess, uh, the stars are people too, hmm. which is hard to believe. That's what I have to share today about Faye Dunaway. Huzzah. Hope you learned something because I sure did. I didn't know anything about her. Yeah, neither did I. <laughs> nice. Well, and with that, we come to our final segment of the show where we thank the Academy for things relating to this episode, to these people, to the films that we talk about. And I will go first with go a pretty obvious one. Uh, I would like to thank the Academy for uh, mentors. Yeah. People who are reaching out to those younger folks around them and helping them either like stay the course or Mm -hmm. help them in their training or like help them be more comfortable on set. There was so much abuse of child actors. Yeah. So much trauma. Or of young people in the industry in general at the start of the industry. And I just love whenever we come across the people who take child actors seriously or take young people in the industry seriously and want to see them succeed and help them. Yeah. Well, there's just something that's so beautiful about seeing kids slash young people with passion and taking that passion seriously, like you're saying, Mm -hmm. and giving them the tools that they don't know they need. Right. Because a a kid doesn't know how to navigate that situation and you as an adult do. And yeah, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I would like to uh, thank the Academy for... Running off to try French New Wave films. Uh-oh. Running off to try French New Wave films. It's the thing to do in the 70s. I guess so. <laughs> you can't be a glamorous uh, icon if you don't do it. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work out. That's correct. <laughs> I would like to thank the Academy for tricks against the MPAA. <laughs> what you got to do to get that rating down, huh? 
uh, it's just so it's so performative. Oh, a thousand percent, a I thousand mean, percent. Everything. I mean, we've talked about it uh, so many times with so many movies where it's just like, well, we'll give you the rating that you're after if you at least just cut one little frame out so we can say that you did it. Yeah, or uh, you are allowed to say twelve f bombs, but if you say thirteen, uh, that's too many. Okay, I don't know how many it is. It's, 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 it's such a limited. More than one. <laughs> all right, all right. You got one free pass or an F-bomb, and then after that, you get the R. Yes. All right. Whatever. Yeah, it, it's... Uh, but he figured out a trick. Yeah, Scorsese they always did. do. They yeah, always just do. Just desaturate the color a little bit. Yeah. I was it doesn't look so bloody. <laughs> I think it's funny with like horror films right now, because we're in this trend where it's like, people don't really want to see R-rated like horror films they want fun pg-13 and so like mm-hmm. what people do in order to like make it pg-13 like the quick cutaway before uh-huh. something happens or like like not showing it as like realistically gory whatever like yeah. it's just you do what you kind of do mm. and i would like to thank the academy for playing rules that are very kindred to you uh-huh i think that's one thing i admire about Faye Dunaway is that she found the things she liked and she really liked them and i always like that when people like what they do and they're good at it, you know? Well, and it's especially good when people have a self-awareness of their type yeah. and then lean into it really hard. And enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, you have to enjoy who you are and how you present to the world. Otherwise, you're going to be fighting yourself your whole life and never happy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's something that is really hard to learn. And it's it's very impressive to me that from a very young age, she knew exactly what her type was and how to get what she wanted. Mm-hmm. Well, and with that, uh, we come to the end. Yeah. We leave you. Yeah. Hope I hope this episode was pretty positive. I tried to talk positively, and I feel like you did too. Yeah. About things that are not super positive. Yeah. Uh, I mean, life's complicated. That's the truth. And then uh, with that, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking in there with us. Yeah. We couldn't do this without you. We appreciate you, our devoted listeners. Yeah. And then join us next week where we discuss the 50th Academy Awards. Our 50th episode. And the best picture winner, Annie Hall. Oh, boy. Okay. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinga. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.